be to the book of Galatians. We're going to continue our series. If you're a guest with us, we've been uh, do studying the book of Galatians, and we're going to be studying it for a while. It is not in my nature to spend more than five to seven weeks on a sermon series, but uh, as Heidi mentioned last week, back in November or so, I just really began feeling called to speak on this book of Galatians because it's Paul's um, greatest letter about the word freedom. And we live in a culture and in a nation that talks a lot about freedom. And we can get some really false ideas of what freedom is as we listen to what our culture tells us freedom is. And so Paul is going to teach us what is real freedom in Christ and what does it mean to walk and live in that freedom. And so we're just discussing various forms of freedom. Now, as just to get started, you guys know that in different places around the world, a word means something different, right? Have you guys ever encountered that? And I'm not like talking about from English to Japanese or something, but in the English language, you can go, particularly, I'll just use the UK as my example this morning. You go to the UK, and you could hear a word there, and it would mean something to them that does not mean to you here in the United States. You guys all with me on this? So here's a couple of examples. I'll show you. I've got pictures with icons for you. So in, in the United States, we say football, and it's this pigskin thing, right? But over in England and really pretty much everywhere else in the whole world, <laughs> that is a football, right, Masaro? Masaro is from Brazil, and he's of Jap Japanese heritage, so he knows like every culture around the world it's a football but that's football for us or this one this one's really interesting to me so you know in 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 the united states over here on the right that that's a deadbeat right a person that goes to work and then just goes to sleep on their desk i mean it's it's a lazy person is a deadbeat but if you're in england and you're exhausted after running for two miles which is what i did this week three times around two miles this week i know it's a miracle uh, that's what I was at the end of it. I was deadbeat, right? Okay, that's what it means in England. So you have these, this experience of the same word meaning two different things based on where you're at. And I find it interesting that there is a word that even in our culture can mean two different things, and that word is Christian, right? To some people, Christian means a prudish, close-minded, angry boring individual, right? That just no joy, doesn't love life. They, they just, they're focused on rules and behaviors and they're judging people and they're rejecting people. But there's a lot of evidence for that sort of Christian, right? There's a lot of evidence for that sort of Christian. But if we were to just take our evidence only from scripture, right? Only from the Bible, we would only see this other image of what it means to be a Christian, People who live joyfully, people who live fully, who are daring, who are passionate, who are filled with compassion and a sense of purpose in life. The Bible is really well stocked with people of God who live this second way. In fact, you never ever in, in the entirety of Scripture see people who are following God living this second way. I mean, think about it. We have stories like Abraham and Moses and Deborah and Ruth and David they, David dances before God. He, he was wild and exuberant. There was no dullness in him. And you think of Peter, you know, his, his fieriness and the walking on water and meeting people in the streets and like silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give to you. And there's like just a sense of joy and healing that comes out of him. And then there's, there's other women in the New Testament like Priscilla and Timothy, and then Timothy not a woman, but then Junia, a female uh, apostle in the, in the New Testament. All of these people of lives of adventure and passion and compassion and empathy and joy. It's just beautiful 
And yet most of the world or much of the world has this closed-minded definition of Christian. And I have to ask myself, how does this happen? How do so many people in the world, and to be honest and fair, so many Christians get such a poor view of what it means to follow Jesus? Why is Christian associated with dullness, caution, inhibition, and dreariness? We would expect that people who have been told stories like the ones I just mentioned, like most of us, you know, have growing up, being grown up in the church, we've been hearing these stories in Sunday school since, you know, we were toddlers. We've been hearing these adventure stories of life with God. We've been hearing these passionate stories of people who love God, people filled with joy and, and compassion. We've been hearing these stories. You would think that Christians in the church would be so driven by those stories that we would want to live them out. You would think that a people who at the very heart of their belief system is the core truth that we have been rescued by God from sin's guilt and shame and law and we've been released into freedom with God and a life in the spirit and we no longer live under the thumb of a controlling spirit or past traumas or public opinion. You would think that we would live fully and we would walk in the sure and certain hope of our future in Christ able to love everybody who comes across our path. You would think that people who are living this way would be so sensitive to anybody who would put on them an image other than this biblical image that God gives us. And that you, we would be so sensitive to anybody putting on us new weights that keep us from walking in that freedom, from walking in joy, from walking in peace and kindness, from walking in compassion and empathy. You would think that we would fight it tooth and nail like the Ukrainians are fighting the Russians. You can't have this country. This is not yours to have. We are free. You would think that we would stand up and fight for it. That we would live with our eyes wide open for anything that would seek to steal our freedom. But sadly, the church, the very place we are most likely to experience the free life, is also the very place where we are in most danger of losing it. Let me say that again. The church is the one place where we are most likely to experience the free life, and yet it is the one place where we are most likely to lose it. And that's why we are doing this series on freedom in Galatians. The key scripture from this book is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It's very simple. I encourage you to even like get this memorized in your heart and in your mind. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I mean, very simply, it's he set us free for the sake of freedom. Therefore, do not submit again to any yoke of slavery. See, the book of Galatians is written to a very far-flung outpost of Christian freedom. It's, it's not the center of power, which was Jerusalem in that day. It's far out across the Mediterranean Sea. You know, in those days, it's kind of the ends of the earth. It's the hinterlands of the world. And Paul is writing to his brothers and sisters there. And, and this is the area, it's, it's modern-day Turkey. But in the first century, it was you know, this outpost way out in the Roman Empire. And it was written by the Apostle Paul, who was a Jewish priest who once violently persecuted Christians. And then he became a Christian missionary. He was radically transformed by God and walked in a new freedom. And the reason he is writing this, I mean, this is his strongest worded letter. He uses strong language. He uses bad words. That's like what we like to say in curses. Um, he uses really strong language. 
uh, in order to, to, to get his point across to this church that, that is surrounded and even infiltrated by a group of people attempting to crush and steal their freedom in Christ. Now, Paul is our master guide in the way of freedom. He is leading his people and us centuries later in a way of walking in freedom, and he wants to teach us the art of guarding and protecting that freedom when it's on the line. Does that make sense? This is what Paul's goal is today. He wants to teach us this art of actually guarding against new yokes of slavery. So in today's section of Scripture, Paul is going to use some, some stories from his own life that will help us guide, and it would help all of us guide and protect our freedom in Christ. And we're going to look at Galatians 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. It's a little bit long, but I hope you'll stay with me. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have it. Um, but I'm reading from the NRSV, New Revised Standard uh, Version of the Bible. And here's what Paul says. This is him telling his stories. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up in response to a revelation. Then I laid before them, though only in a private meeting with the acknowledged leaders. So he's meeting with the, the apostles, right? This is Peter, James, and John, and, and all of those guys that walked with Jesus. Um, it was about 14 to 17 years after Christ uh, resurrected. He says, I laid before them the gospel that I proclaimed amongst the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. But because of false believers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might enslave us, we did not submit to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel may always remain with you. And from those who were supported to be, who were supposed to be acknowledged leaders, and they were what they were actually makes no difference to me. God shows no partialities. Those leaders contributed nothing to me. Only the, on, the, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised, for he, for he worked through Peter, making him an apostle to the circumcised, who also worked through me in sending me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter again, and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me. They gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. You guys got the message, right, after reading that. He's like, you know, all, it's all clear now. You don't need the rest of the sermon. Isn't that, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I, I have to confess, I have read this passage a thousand times, and I thought, oh, that's a nice story. And, uh, and until I read uh, Eugene Peterson's commentary on the book of the Galatians, and he kind of opened my eyes to what the Holy Spirit is speaking here and what Paul is doing in telling the Galatians this story. So Paul here is pointing to the source of danger for the Galatians. It's these false brethren secretly brought in, slipping in to spy out our freedom in Jesus. So there's this one group of Christians that were spying on another group of Christians, and going, this isn't right. What's going on here isn't right. This isn't Christianity. Christianity is Jewish first. It's, it's not Gentile. These people don't look Jewish. They don't act Jewish. They don't smell Jewish. Why are they not circumcised? 
And then you might be asking, how do they know this? I don't know. I, I don't know why they would be able to know, but somehow they seem to know. They don't eat Jewish foods. They're like, where's the gefilte fish? Where's the matzo balls? Where's all, you know, they, they're not eating kosher food. Why would they do this, though? Why would a group of Christians sneak in and spy on another group of Christians and point the finger of accusation against them and say, oh, that's not very Christian. That is very unchristian of you. That's not what it looks like to be a Christian. Why would they do that? I really think it's for the best of reasons. Now, you, it may, Paul makes him sound like evil and bad because they're slipping in and spying out the freedom. and They're trying to take their freedom. But I really believe that these guys probably had the best intentions in mind because I've experienced a lot of Christians this way even today. We have the best intentions, and yet the actions turn out wrong in the end. Anybody ever had that happen in their life? Yeah, about like weekly with my wife, right? Like, I, that's not what I meant. <laughs> I've never said that before. It's not what I meant. I think these people had the best intentions and reasons. And I think what they were trying to do was to protect their tradition and preserve morality. Because that's what this is for them. It's moral law. What they need to do to act right before God. I mean, tradition, for them, tradition was really, really good. I know in our context, tradition is ambivalent at best. Heidi loves tradition. It keeps bringing it in. You go, why are you bringing in tradition? I don't know. We're rooted in something. And so we like to bring it up every now and then. It keeps us connected. But at worst, tradition is just dead religion, right? That's Pentecostal, us Protestant types, we look at it a little bit suspiciously because we've seen Christians who are living entirely just on tradition and have no life change, no transformation, and no power of God at work in their lives. At worst, it's just dead religion. But for them, tradition was the way that they connected themselves, and it's how we connect ourselves to the people of God in, through history in a much, much larger story than the life that we can live. It's a history of the people of God being set apart. So these people were immersed in that history, in that tradition, and they felt and knew that we are set apart by God by how we eat, by how we dress, by how we speak, and by whether or not the men are circumcised. The other side of this is, this is what it means to live a holy life, that God sets us apart, that makes us holy, and then when we live this way, we live a holy life. So this is our new moral code. So they've got this idea of tradition and morality. They're trying to preserve it. And they see these people who are living free of that tradition and free of that morality, living differently, and they're going, wait a minute, this doesn't look like Christianity. People living free like that would be a threat to their tradition and their morality. There would be the possibility of these people living completely in the present and not attached to the past at all anyway, that they could float unattached to things that we have preserved that give us identity, and they could just wander off and become this other weird-looking version of faith, and we call that a cult. There would be the possibility that people living free would reject morality. They could choose instead the trial and error method, like, I'm just going to see if it fails, and if I get hurt or other people get hurt, we can just try anything. Anything goes, and when it becomes a mess, well, we can try something different. They don't have this rooted sense of morality and the people wind up having to learn from their pain and mistakes you know and they're thinking you know we could protect them from so much if they would just learn to live the way we did life is complicated right we can't just go around doing whatever we want that is not the way the world works even though we're free in christ 
we find that if we run around doing whatever we want, we wind up harming ourselves or harming, our, uh, harming others. You know, we can't just decide today when we leave that today would be a good day. You know, we've been talking about England versus the United States. The England seems to have got some things right. So today after church, I'm just switching directions of traffic. I am now driving on the right-hand side of the road. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks or does. I think all of us here at church should just start driving on the right-hand side of the road. That won't work, will it? I mean, we'll just go out there, we'll get in head-on collisions, our church will be dead, and then we'll have to sell the building and start all over. I don't, it just won't work. It's not the way life works. Paul was going to address this idea later on in chapters 5 and 6, and we're going to get to that. But this idea that we can't just reject morality is really important. We can't just reject the rules, the ways in which we live that are healthy for us and healthy for others, and yet we're meant to live free within them. I think on our part, just like these men and women who were sneaking in and spying on this early church, there is this temptation in us to believe that when a person comes to faith, when they are saved, when they are set free, that they will automatically change their behaviors, their thoughts, their political stance to match ours. We got a picture up here to show you kind of what I'm talking about. It's a picture of the cross on one side, and here it is. So you got this Christian equals Republican, non-drinking, heterosexual, married couple, right? But these ideas are really core to Christianity, that this is what will be. During the last election, it was interesting to hear uh, white male evangelicals absolutely shocked to find out that black female evangelicals did not vote Republican, who were, who were Christians. These are Christian people. How could they not vote Republican? And then you hear people who are black and, you know, different cultures, and they're going, how can all of these white people only vote Republican and be Christians? There's all of these issues that God cares about, and we're just shocked. It's because of this tendency in us to believe that when we come to faith, we all suddenly believe the same thing. Now, there is orthodoxy, right? There are things that Christians believe. You know what the one thing we know when we come to Jesus that we can all agree on? That is Jesus, right? The one thing that unites all of us is the cross. Christ invites us into his life, and he sets us free. And we're different, and we're going to have different beliefs and different values. Just because we're all Christians doesn't mean we're going to say and do and look the same. That's why you can go to the Presbyterian church across town, and it looks a little bit different, but we worship the same Jesus. Why you can go to the Baptist church across town, and they worship, it looks a little different, but it's the same Jesus. It's, it's the same Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's like the core verse for Foursquare. I don't guys know that. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Paul is out to guard against us taking this idea that because others are Christians too, that we need to enforce our values on one another and make everybody look the same. That's a new yoke of slavery. And here he goes after three ways in which we put new slavery on one another, or we can be tempted to fall underneath that slavery. It's been said that the church doesn't teach the law anymore. But what we do is we say, you lived under the law, and then you experienced grace, and now we give you a new law, and you have to live a new, this, this new way of life. But God has always taught there is a law, and it teaches us how broken we are, and I give grace. End of story. And he wants us to learn to live in that grace. He's calling us to resist. Okay, everybody put your hand up like this with your fist. Right. This is the universal sign of resistance. It could be Black Lives Matter. It could be Ukrainian support. It could be whatever. But 
This is what God's calling us to, resist the yokes of slavery that anybody would want to put on us. Paul faces down Peter and the leadership of the church. I mean, this is Peter, the head of the church. Jesus says, on Peter, I will build my church, right? He is the rock. And Paul goes face to face with this high, I mean, he is, he is the president of the church. He is, there is nobody higher than Peter. He has got all the power, all the authority, and his weight counts a lot. And he goes and faces him down, and he says, no, we're not going to submit to your yoke of slavery that, that, that people are trying to put on us. God has called us to something different. He does it, though, so that the gospel may remain with you. This is one of those places where this wasn't written to us. This was written to the Galatians, but it is still written for us, that God still speaks to us through it. And he says this is so that the gospel will remain with you. Because if Peter hadn't or Paul hadn't stood up to them and said no, we would all be under the same yoke of slavery thousands of years later. And so he calls us to resist, and he calls us to resist these three things. And I, I don't want to take the time to, like, I could, I could have done a sermon where it was a three-point sermon, and I spent time on each of these, but one of them really spoke to me this week for myself and I think for our culture and our church. So I'm just going to quickly go over the first two, and it's backwards from how it's written. So the first one is that he calls us to resist navel-gazing, okay? And that, that's the ending of the passage where, where he says, you know, the only thing they wanted us to do was don't forget the poor. And I was actually eager to do that, right? It's so easy for us who get caught up in theology and freedom and all these things to get focused on me, right? Get focused on my freedom. Get focused on the things that my rights and my, my way and my life. And we can look at this and we can explore our faith from that perspective and we can live outwardly from that perspective. And what happens is we get our head turned down and we miss what's going on around us. That's navel-gazing. And, and Peter and Paul both agree that this is the one thing that we don't want to see happen to the church. The church needs to have its eyes up. Head up. Look around you. See the people on the margins. See the poor. See the hurting. See the people that are refugees. See the people that are orphans. And try to take care of them. Take care of one another in your hurts. Bear each other's burdens. This is all wrapped up in this idea of don't forget the poor. The poor in spirit. The poor in heart. The poor in finance. The church is meant to not be navel-gazing, but to care for others. And I got to tell you, it is one of the greatest battles of being a church leader is helping the church keep its eyes up because I, too, have to keep my eyes up. It's so hard for me because I just want to focus on me, focus on us, focus on the nice seats. We got missions month coming up, and we're going to have a couple missionaries, hopefully, come and share with us to help us keep our eyes up. So resist navel-gazing. Hands up, resist navel-gazing. Down with navel-gazing up with freedom in Christ and bringing freedom to others. Second thing is resist living somebody else's life. This could be a whole sermon series all on its own, and it's some of the stuff that we deal with in our discipleship courses, emotionally healthy spirituality and emotionally healthy relationships. Peter and Paul were both called. Peter was called first. Peter was called to a Jewish context, and here comes Paul being given this new revelation from God with this new calling that looks radically different. He's to go to uncircumcised Gentile people around the world. He's called to be the first missionary, right? Up to this point, everybody was like, they were running for their lives, and then they accidentally told people the gospel. That's what was happening up to this point. But Paul, he's like, no, I'm not running for my life. I'm, I'm running after Jesus for my life. And as I'm going, I'm telling people this story because it's been it's set me free. He's got this really different 
calling, this really different life that he has been built for than Peter did. And the discussion here was, is this really how God intended things to be? You know, it, Peter could have been sitting in the back, and I can imagine myself as Peter, you know, the leader of the church, hearing about this guy named Paul, who is a really highly trained uh, Jewish ruler. I mean, this guy was a priest, and he had worked his way up. I mean, he was really knowledgeable. He was, like, had all the biblical smarts. He was PhD-level uh, individual. He got all this stuff. Plus, he's got all of this passion and all of this strength and ability to organize people and to lead people. And I, I hear about this guy coming up the ladder, like, learning the gospel and thinking, ooh, he needs to come to Jerusalem because we need somebody in here to help us with these religious leaders in town. We need somebody to come and go to them. This life that Peter could imagine for Paul. But when they do come together, what they discuss is this unique call on Paul's life. And Paul resists. He says, no, I, that is not what I am called to. Here is the gospel. Here is how I see that he has set me free and is setting people free. And God has given me this to take to these other people. And Peter wisely listens to the Holy Spirit and affirms his calling. In this room, we are each different. We are all called to something unique. And I say called, that doesn't mean that you have to be a pastor. You may be called to hospitality. You may be called to the nursing home. Or you may be called to be a mother or a teacher or a veterinarian or a janitor. I mean, there's all of these things in life, and we can be called to them. And God is inviting us to live our unique life there, not somebody else's. That's the second thing that we're to resist. So down <laughs> with the enforcement of somebody else's life on me. I'm called to live uniquely and wholly in my own life. But here's the one I really want to focus on. The freedom to resist extra baggage or preconditions is another way of saying it. If you go to the airport, one of the things that you hear on that automated system all the time is, look around you, make sure that the bag that you are carrying is your own. Keep your eye on your bag at all times so that nobody sticks something in your bag that you did not see or know about. I mean, it's all about security, right? But the goal for me is to make sure I'm not carrying somebody else's bag, right? I know what I got in mind. I don't want anybody else's extra weight. I'm not trying to take somebody else's extra bag to, you know, wherever I'm going. And that's what we're being called to here. Resist somebody trying to put their baggage on us so that we have to carry it. Verses 3 through 5, it says this, But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Titus was a Greek Christian. He had heard the good news that God loved him just as he was. He accepted the news that God loved him just as he was, and he realized that in return, God accepted him. Past, present, and future, all of him. Everything that he was in that moment, God just said, yes, just yes to you. I just love you, and I want you to be with me. Titus was created by God. His longings, his feelings, his body, his thoughts, all of his gifts, all of this stuff was just a gift from God. And Titus was lost in wonder of that. I can't even, you know, it's like even myself, I struggle with this, that I could stand before God and he would just say, hey, yeah, yeah accepted. You didn't do anything that made me accept you. You didn't, you didn't say the right thing. It's not how you're dressing. It's not whether you sing well or don't sing well. I just accept you. He was perfect, just like this, and set free, despite his inadequacies, 
despite him take, not taking responsibility for his sin, what, whatever, every guilt, everything that he had to do or not do or work out or not work out, all of that mess, all of the marbles in the bag dumped out before God and just accepted. Just accepted. But then he comes to Jerusalem, and he was inspected, apparently pretty privately. He was inspected. And people are going, we've not met a Greek Gentile Christian before. How does this work? And then he was told, you know, I'm not sure, Titus. I don't think you're free. There's something more basic than God's love for you. Something more foundational. It's called circumcision. And Titus says, what's that? And then he says, no, 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 no. They said, yeah, this is a permanent sign of your faith. It's a mark of being one of God's kids. It shows the world that you're separate, that you're set apart, that you're joined to God, that God loves you. Yes, true, God loves you. Jesus saves you, yes, but you're not a part of the family until you become like one of us. Can I just ask, why do we do this to each other? I mean, really, why do we do this to each other in the church? Why do we implicitly and sometimes explicitly impose conditions on people as a prerequisite for God's acceptance of them? If you dress this way, if you talk this way, if you choose this sexuality, if you vote this way, then you're one of us. I've known people who would love to come and be a part of a community like ours, who want to know and discover God, who are curious, but they are deathly afraid of how they will be received because they just know in their heart of hearts they're not going to be accepted. They're too out there. They're too broken. They believe things too differently. They vote too differently. They could never be a part of the church. I've known people who have come to Jesus and come and been a part of the church and sat in these very seats and they sat and they learned and they were growing and then they heard, so when do you think God's going to change that in you? When when do you think you're going to be different? literally those words. And they walked away from not just the church, but faith. Because it wasn't just that they were hearing, this person doesn't accept me, but clearly I am not acceptable before God. I've known pastor's kids who've grown up in the church. I've heard stories of them who've been with Jesus their whole lives, that they walk away from Jesus because they weren't accepted in their own church. The expectations for how they were supposed to live and who they were supposed to be and how they were supposed to act were so high. They felt like they could never measure up. And because they can't measure up to the people at church, they can't measure up to God. We have five pastor kids in our church. Please don't do this to them. Please. You guys have done pretty well, by the way. Pretty well. But please don't do this to them. I have known people who want to be accepted by God, but can't be accepted by the church. And so they live their life as they live their life, and they walk away. And it is so strange to me that God accepts people and that we struggle to do likewise. Now, pause. Pause on that. There is a place for boundaries, okay? There's this great fable that's out there that we teach in EHS. We taught it last week. It's about this whole village of, you know, this thinks of some really small, cute animal, like a, a rabbit or a jackalope. Those are fun, too, because they're rabbits with horns. Um, but 
there's just this whole village of cute little animals that are living together in harmony and peace. But along comes a tiger. And the tiger is kind of hanging out on the outskirts of town where the, the rabbits that have been, you know, farming, the farming rabbits live there. I'm making this up as I go. Uh, the farming rabbits live out there, and they're farming away. And the tiger comes along, and he's like, hey there, little rabbit. And the rabbit's like, oh, well, who are you? He's like, oh, I'm a tiger. Oh, that's nice to meet you, tiger. This seems like a nice village to live in, little rabbit. He's like, oh, yeah, it is a great village to live in. And, the, and eventually, you know, he makes friends with this rabbit. And then other rabbits come and meet the tiger. And the tiger says, you know, I'm tired of living out here in the woods. I would like to come and live in the rabbit village. And the rabbits are like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's go talk to everybody in the village. And so they come and say, hey, everybody, we want you to meet this tiger. Th this is a tiger. And they're like, tigers aren't good, dude. Tigers eat rabbits. They eat them for breakfast and lunch and dinner. This is what tigers do. They eat rabbits. This tiger's different. He's like the sharks on Nemo, right? Fish are friends, not food. You know, rabbits are friends, not food. And the tiger is saying this, rabbits are friends, not food. But the li village leaders are like, ah, this, this is off. Because tigers are not vegetarians. So it creates division in the, this little village. Eventually, though, the tiger does eat the rabbits. And that's the moral of the story. There is a place for boundaries. There are tigers out there. And we have to be careful. And we have to protect but we have to accept people where they're at. Even if they can't be a part of our community, they can be a part of somewhere. You following me? You picking up what I'm putting down? All right. Now, I, I want you to know, guys, that <laughs> preaching, preaching to myself that over the years, and even now, I've struggled to accept other people right where they're at. And I believe at the heart it's because I struggle to accept myself right where I'm at. I struggle to believe that God accepts me right where I'm at, you right where you're at, them right where they're at. And perhaps we do this because deep down most of us just don't really feel like God can accept us with all of our warts, with all of our brokenness, with all of our mistakes, with all of our failures, with all of our predilections, all of our desires that are out of whack. We have this image of God that loves us, yes, but he just mostly wants us to stop sinning. Could you guys just knock it off me? Like just imagine God saying that. Would you just start acting like real Christians? Stop sinning. We have this angry God that's ready to punish us. Or we hear this voice, the voice of the accuser. Or maybe, you know, if you're from the 19, let's see. If you're 50 or older, you imagine this as a record. If you're between 50 and 30, imagine this as a cassette tape. Um, everybody under 30, it's an MP3 or a podcast, okay? It's just, it's this thing that's in your head, and it tells you exactly how you feel about yourself. It says, oh, you're just wrong, you're broken, you make mistakes, and it just loops. The record player works really well, right, guys, because it gets stuck on the same song. <laughs> MP3s don't do that, but imagine that it did, it was broken. And we just hear this ac accusation in our head, you don't measure up, you're not good enough, you, you're sinful, you're broken, you're just prideful, you're just angry, you're just lustful, you're slothful, you're whatever it is, you, you know, you're, you're, you're just a glutton, you just keep overeating, and we hate ourselves for it, and we come before God thinking he does too. Or we hear the voice of our families that are just saying the same stories, our ancestors, don't disappoint us, get it right, will you? Anything short of perfection is failure. And we live out of that broken message instead of our acceptance. I live out of my brokenness instead of my acceptance. 
working again and again and again for our salvation. Paul is teaching us that so long as we refuse to challenge and resist, we will not be free. Until we get our hands in the air and say, no, I am not going to live from this broken record. I'm going to live from my acceptance. I've been accepted by God. I don't need to look Jewish. I don't need to look like X, Y, or Z. But God accepts me right here and right now. We will never be able to walk into a new freedom that God has designed for us. We will forever be under the weight of preconditions. We will carry those bags of pleasing others, of performing, of polishing our image so that other people will see something good instead of the real broken us. How can we be free if we're constantly afraid of being rejected by other people or by God? Because of the things that we failed to say or the thing that we didn't do right or because some inadequacy was exposed. Paul says, no, we do not submit to them so that the gospel may come to you. Paul resisted for you. We are called to resist for others. Say that again. Paul resisted for you. We are called to resist for others so that they would know that God accepts them. Gay, straight, married, divorced, black, white, Republican, Democrat, independent, communist, <laughs> you know, like whatever. Are we gonna do God says yes. Yes to you. Yes. And so we say no to being enslaved again. We often act as though, you know, if you believe like us and you behave like us, then you can belong here. But God flips it on its head. He says, no, you belong. I just say yes to you. You belong. You can come in and be with me. And then your belief will begin to change as you live in this acceptance. And then your behavior will change as you live in this acceptance. It's totally flipped on its head. It's upside down. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While the woman at the well was still living with a man who wasn't her husband and had lived with five or six other men before that, it is this train wreck of her life, abused, rejected, unable to love well, unable to be stable. Christ reaches out to her. While Peter was about to betray Jesus, they sat down and ate at the same table, and Jesus loved him. While Paul was still breathing threats of murder, Jesus meets him and calls him. We are not just saved people, but we are people who are being saved. We can pour out all of our marbles before God and experience his acceptance. Here's me, all of me, and it's all over the place. Things are rolling out of my control, and we can trust that God will accept us and meet us right there. So my closing question for us this morning what preconditions do you need to resist taking on yourself and, and or putting on to others? What keeps you from accepting other people? What keeps you from accepting yourself? What is it that when you come before God, you feel like, oh, he's, if I, if I, do, if I show him this, he's definitely, he's out of here. What part of you do you need to begin to open to the Lord? And let's just let the Holy Spirit speak to us for a minute on that.
to pray for us this morning. Uh, we just start our heads still, just comes in an attitude of prayer before God and listening. I'm not going to ask for hands or anything like that. You can nod your head if you want to. You can look up at me if you want to, but I know that the Holy Spirit is speaking. And so I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Just I want I you to be able to acknowledge that God is speaking something to you. So just for starters, I mean, how many of you would say in your heart, in your head, you can nod and look at me, whatever you want. Yes, I have put preconditions on other people before I can accept them. Who would say that? I'm raising my hand. <laughs> I, am, I am in on this. Yeah. So God, for those of us who would say that this is what we've done, we pray that you would forgive us. Uh, this is part of the mess that we come and stand before you in. And it is a miracle that you accept us where we're standing when we struggle to accept others. And so we pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would make us compassionate, gentle, and full of your spirit to love people the way you love them and allow you to do the hard work of transformation in your spirit's name, we pray. Amen. Now, holding on to this moment of prayer, uh, the second question, I have to ask it, and we all need to ask it. How many of us, again, I am looking up, I am saying yes, I've got hands and feet raised, struggle to just believe that God really does accept you just as you are. This moment, not, or, or your bad moment yesterday, or, or the awful moment that happened last week. Would you say that you struggle, Christian, non-Christian, accepted Jesus, didn't accept Jesus, how many of you would say that that's true of you? Maybe I'm the only one. Oh, I got some heads nodding. There's some heads nodding. Okay. Can we just pray and ask the Lord to give us a vision of his love for us? Because I think it's the only thing that will ever break in me this belief that I'm not enough and in you this belief that we're not enough. Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes to a vision of your love. God, keep us centered and focused on the cross where you died for us um, you were dying for Roman soldiers who crucified you. You were dying for people who spit on you and beat you. And you were saying, God, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. And I pray that we would hear this vision of ourselves in our own heart. Forgive us because we don't even know what we're doing. Help us to stand in that space of your love and to see and know the depths and height and width and breadth of it. And to live accepted in you. To resist the new yoke of slavery that would be placed on us, that we have to look away a certain way, act a certain way, be a certain way to be accepted by you. Set us free, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me and let's sing the doxology to close. Praise.